0: The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of BC Soccer, its membership organizations, or their affiliate organizations.
1: Welcome to BC Soccer's Cones and Pennies podcast, a show designed to inspire and connect the British Columbia soccer community. Here's what's coming up on today's show.
0: It's our 10th episode, and to celebrate, we're welcoming somebody who's nearing the end of her illustrious career while chatting with someone who's just starting his own head coaching adventure. Excited to welcome to the show two proud British Columbians, Maeve Glass and Martin Nash.
1: Here's your host, BC Soccer's Marketing and Communications Officer, Peter Shad.
0: Welcome to our first podcast of the new year and what a start to the year from a Canadian soccer fans view. From a BC soccer standpoint national team success is fantastic as we're members of Canada soccer so watching Canada Red dominate is truly amazing and especially when players or staff from BC contribute in a meaningful way. We are thrilled and we're proud of course. Our primary focus is on seeing as many people from every different background and ability, not just being involved in the game in our province, but having it be a positive experience. I don't need to tell you about how important soccer and team sports in general is to the health and well-being of our communities. And that is what's most important to us. Because if people are involved and enjoying themselves, then there's a pretty good chance they'll stick around and maybe even be part of something bigger, like our country's national teams one day. But as soccer fans, can you believe what's happening right now with Canada's women and men? I was 16 When Canada qualified for Mexico, I vividly recall watching the game nervously with my friend Thomas Hicks and just being so elated by the accomplishment in Newfoundland 1985. That was 37 years ago. What we're experiencing now is so much different. You might be familiar with a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins, which takes a deep dive into the cultural behaviors of companies that greatly outperformed their industry competitors in specific metrics. I actually found it very interesting and useful. And in the book, the author talks about what level five leadership is and also this concept of a momentum ball. Since the 1986 World Cup, soccer in this country has been kind of like a giant stone boulder, a momentum ball, if you will, that you, me, and thousands of others involved in our sport have been trying to push. We're all doing our part to try and move it, which can be frustrating and downright painful at times. For so long, that stone boulder hadn't budged at all, which led some of us pushers to bickering and arguing about the best way to try and attack it, claiming our way is the best way and only way. Some people even split from this big Canadian soccer boulder and started trying to move other smaller ones instead because theoretically that would be easier. Forget the one big boulder, I'm going to move this small one over here and that will make me happy. There were moments when the big boulder budged During the 2000 Gold Cup, for example, when one of today's guests played a pivotal role in Canada winning its one and only title in that competition. It budged a little during two Women's Olympic soccer tournaments and one very memorable summer hosting the Women's World Cup in 2015. But for the most part, moving that big boulder, which represents success at the national team level, seemed insurmountable, making some of us even question whether it was worth it. But something started happening in the last several years. Canadians began appearing on the rosters of big foreign clubs. Their potential between 16 and 20 would get cultivated in North American leagues, academies, and colleges, before these players were plucked by some of Europe's most recognizable organizations. In addition to a very exhaustive identification and naturalization initiative on the men's side, Suddenly, our elite young male and female players were moving abroad, which then helped increase the standard and environments at the national team level when they returned. Bev Priestman, coach of Canada's women's team, said as much on this very podcast.
1: The minute that them Europeans particularly, and that's not taking anything away from the unbelievable players we have as well in NWSL and all the other countries, but I would say, if I put my attention on in England... I feel it when they come in, the the ball speed, the tempo, like they're around some of the best players day in, day out with the best facilities, the best sports science, like you feel that. And I think that's definitely helped our program.
0: And with Bev and John Herdman, two diminutive but mighty level five leaders, they have managed to create environments and team climates that their players are gleefully happy to fly eight hours to be part of. In fact, the similarities between our national teams is striking. John and Bev are as much cult leaders as they are coaches. One of the philosophical evolutions of both teams was to simplify the tactical and systems-based strategies so that players who were only around for short international windows can quickly adapt to simple, concise, and coherent principles on the actual field. John and Bev need to take a lot of credit for creating what another past guest of this show, Steve Simonson from UNBC, wrote a paper on. That's the benefits of a mastery motivational climate which creates psychological safety within a group as opposed to the cutthroat club environments that many of these players are coming from. This philosophy is meant to focus solely on helping a player achieve their highest potential without the fear of failure and potentially losing their place. This is the next player up mentality you sometimes hear about. And the actual players, these young 20-somethings, not even in the prime of their careers yet, have also brought confidence, belief, and most importantly, bravery to their programs. These are players who love spending time with one another and what they've accomplished and are still accomplishing could be deeply meaningful for our country, especially right now. One of the attributes I've always associated with Canadians is bravery. And these soccer players are, at the moment, manifesting that very characteristic right before our eyes, and I think it's connecting and uniting our country. Now that big old boulder is not just moving, but it's actually starting to roll on its own. And as the months go by, it will start gathering inertia. It will accelerate with our women's team playing in the Arnold Clark Cup Tournament this month, where Canada gets to face England, Germany, and Spain, as those European powerhouses prepare for the women's Euros this summer in England. It will likely increase momentum as the men complete the qualification round, hopefully finishing first in CONCACAF as they faced Costa Rica, Jamaica, and Panama. And once World Cup qualification is confirmed... Well, one can only imagine how fast that giant boulder will be rolling as the hype builds up to the first ever November World Cup in just nine months' time. But then we have the Women's World Cup to look forward to next year. and our own World Cup four years from now, what we do between now and then to fully capitalize on this huge momentum-gathering boulder could set us up for the next 20 years or more. Building League Ones and increasing the amount of communities with standards-based environments so that there's always opportunity for anyone connected with the game will certainly help. Expanding the CPL and creating financial stability and strength while continuously improving the standard of play will then help send more Canadian players to Europe. And of course, we need to do the exact same thing with a national domestic women's league, which I truly believe is imminent. But the most important thing that can happen over these next five years or so is that Canada builds its own footballing culture, culture that is unique to and inspired by Canadians. Sure, we could take some inspiration from established foreign leagues, clubs, and federations on how we do things, learn from others' successes and mistakes. But at the end of the day, there is only one Canada. We need to continue telling our story through soccer and creating our own unique values, traditions, and customs around the game here, to the point where international clubs look over at us and say, well, I wish we had thought of that. That's pretty cool what they're doing over there in Canada. Never in my lifetime would I have imagined seeing this giant Canadian soccer boulder gathering speed and momentum the way it is. Everyone who has helped push that boulder initially as hard as it's been sometimes— needs to take some sense of satisfaction and credit in providing that push. What we all need to be wary of is that ball starting to roll on its own and all of us just standing there watching it while congratulating ourselves. Because although we are responsible for helping to move it in the first place, the law of physics says inertia will always eventually slow down and stop without additional energy. So as that ball is moving, let's run behind it just in case it hits a bump. Then we can be right there to help nudge it forward again, because none of us want another 36 years of a big old stationary boulder in this country.
1: Now, a training tip from BC Soccer's Manager of Coaching Development, Rob Shabai.
2: Do you begin your soccer practice with every player with a ball? Now that's a good start. Does it move to getting touches on the ball and does it sound something like this? Do some toe taps. Now dribble with the right foot, then dribble with the left, do a cutback, and so on. Getting touches on the ball is great, but have you ever thought about if your commands are actually helpful at all from a developmental perspective, or is there a better way to achieve this? The well-intentioned variety of touches you are seeking in this scenario elicits a direct response to your static instructions in comparison to a dynamic environment such as a game-like activity players use to make their decisions. What I mean is, these touches have to be relearned in a game context that relates to the game constraints, which are explored through those challenges like opposition or opportunity. So what might be a different way of looking at this to move from a coach-directed approach to a player-led responsibility. Keeping with our theme of getting more touches on the ball, consider a simple activity set up in a small grid of two players, each with a ball. One player is a tagger and the other is the escaper. If the player gets tagged, the roles reverse. Both players must use ball manipulation skills to achieve the goal of either tagging the other or evade the tagger by using the right skills at the right time with the right pace. So instead of the coach directing them what to do, they decide for themselves the best way of solving the problem in this dynamic situation. For larger groups, open up the grid size, have 2 taggers and 5 escapers for example, and have a second grid doing the same. Your job is to ensure that the spacing is just right, the players understand the rules, and you manage the time of exertion to give the players adequate rest as well. You can use this idea as part of your warm-up before you move on to the next section of your practice plan. So what have you achieved by doing this? 1. You got your touches in, which was your original plan. 2. You didn't have to come up with the next move, as the players figured it out themselves. 3. It was done at game pace, and the players had to use their perception and skills to make their own decisions. And lastly, you observed the players' facial expressions, and they were having fun, while learning and exploring their own skills. Give it a try, and I wish you good coaching.
1: That was today's training tip with Rob Shabai. To find a coaching course near you, visit bcsoccer.net and choose Register for a Course under the Coach tab.
0: Imagine growing up in a family where all three kids played multiple sports, some at the highest level, including, of course, soccer. Well, our guest was good at all of those sports, but soccer took him on a journey from his hometown in Victoria through Vancouver with almost 60 games for the 86ers and later close to 200 with the Whitecaps with additional stops in Montreal and Rochester and foreign adventures in Macclesfield, Chester and Stockport, England. He's earned 38 caps for Canada and contributed one of the great moments in the program's history when his inch-perfect through ball set up Richard Hastings for a Gold Cup Golden Goal against mighty Mexico in 2000. Now he's on his coaching journey, having spent time in Ottawa with the Fury, the national team, and the CPL's Cavalry Football Club at Spruce Meadows, and has just recently been named the new head coach of York United. I'm so happy to welcome to the Cones and Pennies podcast, Martin Nash. Nashy, thanks for coming. It's great to hear your voice again.
3: Yeah, you too, Pete. Thanks for having me.
0: Listen, when three kids in the same family go on to have enviable sporting careers, I do have to ask right out of the gates, apart from good genes, what was it about your dad, John, and your mom, Jean that helped shape those early sporting experiences?
3: Funny, I think they just gave us opportunity. We were active kids, and they just gave us opportunity to play a whole bunch of different sports, and it was just something we excelled at right away and were into. So they didn't have to do a lot because we were out practicing and playing when we weren't at training. We were out playing on our own, so... Um, no matter what sport it was, we were always, you know, hitting the ball around or shooting the basket or playing soccer. So uh, we we're just those type of kids that just played all the time.
0: I know you're not going to brag about your basketball career, but I remember you did stand out in a couple of games en route to that SMU 92 year. Uh, didn't you play rugby as well?
3: Yeah, I played high school rugby, won it in my grade 11 year. We were the best team in our grade 12 year, but big rugby schools. We played our second team in one game <laughs> and we lost.
0: Why football in the end, Nashi?
3: it was my first love definitely i did you know halfway down the basketball path and it just wasn't quite right for me and kind of back to football and uh learned the basic skills at such a long age i had good technical ability that it was easy for me to bounce back and i think because i played other sports too it kind of helped me see the game and um, understand the game and it was my first love and it's the sport i love playing the most my dad grew up with us we were always watching on tv it was the only sport i really watched on tv to be honest i didn't really watch other sports it was always uh, football but just like to play anything that i could
0: just on that and because you have your own kids now too how, how do you feel about this recent trend of early single sports specialization
3: i'm not a big fan i understand it to an extent but i just love playing all those other sports so if you just said oh no you can only play this it wouldn't have been fun for me you know what I mean? it was almost like it, became, it would become a job at too young an age. So I, you know, I think multi-sport athletes, there's, there's a lot to be said about playing multiple sports to a certain age, but there, yeah, there is a certain age where you maybe have to go into one sport, but I don't think that's till 14, 15.
0: Your playing career came at an interesting time. It was between the NASL folding and before MLS really started flourishing where, you know, opportunities and money were a little more limited and travel never ending. But how important now were those experiences seeing as how your are leading a group that's going through kind of a similar growth cycle in the CPL.
3: There's so many interesting, uh, you know, growth things going on. It, it like from different eras of my career with uh, I think it was the A League it was called the only league in North America at the time, and that one kind of going down. And then the MLS come. I was in Europe when the MLS came in. The USL kind of took a rise as well in the US, and the sport just kind of went up and down, went up and down, and the MLS even went up and down to a certain extent until. You know, it finally took a grip and I'd say in 2005 or six, it kind of started taking a grip and going in the right direction completely. It's been a funny last 20 years in soccer, so to speak, in North America. But um, I think Canada is now finally going in the right direction as the U.S. did probably 15 years ago.
0: You were at a club in cavalry that could be characterized as one of the CPL's perennial powers. What made you pursue this new opportunity and how did it all come together?
3: I really enjoyed my time at Calvary. It's a great club, a great organization. has great ownership, and it was a fantastic to be a part of. I've always wanted to be a head coach and have a chance, and just the opportunity hadn't come. Um, and when this opportunity came, I just felt I couldn't let it go because you never know if you're going to get that chance again. So while I was happy with everything that was going on at Calvary, it just I had to take my chance when it came. So it came, and I think uh, i come to a great organization, had some great talent in the field, and I'm really excited looking forward to the season starting.
0: It's such a different role being an assistant to the head coach. It's also way more secure being an assistant. Nashia, there's only so many head coaching roles, as you've just said, and only so many patient owners who are willing to give the plan the time that it needs. Did you, did you have to think about all those things or was it just about the opportunity?
3: No, I had to think about those things too. You got to make sure, you know, you can't just jump at any opportunity, but I looked at the organization, talked to a lot of people and Felt the organization was going in the right direction, or at least trying to, and that I'd have the right support around me. So there was a lot of positives there. I talked to Tommy a lot about it at length, and uh, just decided that it was my time to run my own team and put everything I've learned over the last eight years as an assistant—you know, the three in Ottawa and the four in Calgary—put that to use right the opportunity to find the game I'm really excited about it and uh, I'm looking forward to it
0: you've worked with some great people you mentioned Tommy there Tommy Wilden Jr. of course Mark Dos Santos in Ottawa in addition to all the guys you played for and won championships with like Bob Lilly Do those guys influence your philosophies or do they merely affirm the ideas that you've probably had all along about the game?
3: Definitely influenced me to some extent. The coach I played for and you always take some of the good and the bad. There's things that Bob Lilly did that I will use that uh, I think are still relevant today, for instance, and that was what more than 10 years ago. I think the most experience I'll I'll learn on my time with Marco Santos and uh, Tommy Wilden Jr. and just what I've learned and uh, really applying my knowledge of the game and the way I go about things is really mimicked after my times under those
0: two coaches. Do you have a preferred system or style of play in mind for York or will you have to adapt a little bit to the technical approach depending on what your roster looks like?
3: I think I have the way I want to play you know I want to play front foot. I want to press I want to kind of own the ball and I want us to put our stamp on the game put the other team on the back foot and I think that we have the ability to do that and uh I'm not too concerned about the system of play, really confident in my ability tactically to coach whatever system needs to be just to get the best players I can on the field. But yeah, I definitely want to be a front foot team and get after other teams.
0: Recruitment is such a critical part of your job. How big a role do you get to play in the scouting and acquiring of
2: players?
3: Funny enough, I came into this and I, I didn't come in blind. I knew even going for the interview that the roster was pretty much set. We already had 21 of the 23 spots taken or 19 of the 23 maybe taken. So Didn't have a lot of wiggle room this year. I've been assured that in the future I will get that opportunity to have my say on everyone who comes in. But the club at the time just had opportunities to wrap up some people that they didn't think they could pass on. So... But I'm still, I mean, I'm happy with the squad. It's a really talented squad. It's got good amount of youth, but just the right amount, I think, of senior players to kind of help the youth along. So I think it's a good mix in this squad, and really looking forward to seeing how they grow over the season.
0: The CPL has all sorts of uh, budgetary and other factors to consider, you know, age and the minutes played, domestic, international status. But is there one characteristic that going forward, a player must have in order to be a York United player?
3: I think the right mindset is one of the biggest things I'm looking for. A player that is aggressive, doesn't switch off either way in attack or in defense, they stay engaged in the game. And um, when we lose possession, they're looking to win it back right away. Um, it's just those intangibles. I think um, you get a lot of players these days that they can do all the skill on the ball, but they don't do the little things off the ball. So I think that's the biggest thing is uh, having a player that's two ways and has that right mindset in transition to to be effective.
0: I was reflecting on your amazing gold cup moment 22 years ago now against Mexico (laughs) as an alum of the program. What is going through your mind as you watch Canada basically steamroll the rest of
2: CONCACAF?
3: It's exciting to watch. I I think it's a very exciting team and a deep team. They're not just, you know, 11, 15 players. There's, you know, 20 five twenty-eight players I think that really could do a job. It's great to watch. They're a fun team to watch. They're athletic. They're technical. They go forward with pace and, and power and then they but they also have that ability to keep possession. So it's it's just fun to watch. I think they got a great balance in the squad. their coaching staff's brought a great culture to the group and it's fun to watch them play and to see Canada being, dare I say dominant right now. So it's great for me to watch. I'd love to play with a lot of those players. Although if I was in my prime, I'm not sure I'm getting in that team. It makes me really happy to see how well they're doing.
0: The thought crossed my mind that many of these guys, uh, both men and women, are not even in their prime yet. And that could occur somewhere around 2026. Should we be dreaming a bit bigger, have higher expectations maybe over these next four to five years? Or should we just watch what happens and support it regardless?
3: Yeah, I think we watch it happen and support them. I don't think we kind of put too much pressure on them. They'll do that themselves. They'll want to be successful. They could say the culture in the group to be successful is they work for one another, which is what all great teams have and those intangibles. So, quietly optimistic that they obviously they will get to this World Cup, in my opinion. And um, getting there, I think they can cause some trouble and maybe cause some upset. So, wouldn't put it past them getting out of their group at the World Cup. So, I definitely think they'll be able to uh, make some noise at the World Cup, which would be brilliant to see. You know, you got a lot of people, myself included, that we support our home, like the countries our families are from. But uh, more and more so, people are supporting Canada, which is unbelievable, to see.
0: How much do you think this national team's success will benefit or impact the Canadian Premier League and then, of course, hopefully a corresponding future Women's Domestic League?
3: It'd be massive. You know, kids to see, you know, Canadian players in the World Cup and to have this league here, you know, professional league in their backyard, it gives more Canadian kids an opportunity. The opportunities were... Slim Pickens, when I was coming through, you, you had two professional teams in the country at the time and in, in uh, the Vancouver 86ers and the Montreal Impact. So if you weren't getting in one of those teams, you had to go over to Europe. And even when you got into those teams, you really had to go to Europe to make a career of it. Um, it was a stepping stone. So now that you have the CPL and three MLS teams, there's just a lot of options, a lot of opportunity in almost everyone's backyard now. So. That's great for the talent coming through, a place for everyone really across the country to find a path to the professional game. And the more players that we can get into the professional game, the better the the national program will be.
0: Everyone's always called you Nashy for as long as I've known you, but now you're the boss. What are your players going to call you?
3: long as they're respectful. I'm not, I'm, I don't really mind. Nashi, someone called me gaffer. It's all good. I'd probably between one of those two, but as long as we win, I don't really mind what they call me, to be honest.
0: <laughs> Tommy <laughs> wheeled and always wore a 16-piece suit on the sidelines. Are, are you going to be a suit or a tracksuit guy? Uh,
3: maybe smart casual. I haven't actually decided or thought too much about it. I don't know if I'll be wearing a suit in the I'd Be a bit uncomfortable, especially in the summer. It'd be half off after through the game. Maybe a tracksuit in the winter. Keep warm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so great catching up with you, Nashi. And uh, now we have a reason to pay close attention to another CPL club. All the best with York United. And thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thanks, Peter. Appreciate
4: it. Hi, I'm Kyla DePerna, BC Soccer's Referee Programs Manager, with My View from the Middle. We have some really exciting things being planned to highlight development opportunities for referees across the province. Recently, BC Soccer released its Referee Development Pathway and grading protocol to help officials identify their classification, provide a clear direction for officials who aspire to move up, and identify talent across the province. Whether you're a referee who has just graduated from a course or looking to upgrade, the pathway promotes development at any age and every stage. We'd also like to congratulate and recognize the 10 provincial referees who were recently accepted into the Canada Soccer Next Gen Program you can find the story on the BC Soccer website and those who were promoted to FIFA classifications, two of which were from BC. On behalf of the refereeing community, thank you to all those people who helped in their development towards their promotion. Your passion and dedication has helped to shape the next generation of aspiring officials. To learn more about refereeing, to enrol in a clinic, or if you're looking to get involved, visit bcsoccer.net and click on the Referee tab for more information. I'm Kyla DePerna, and that's my view from the middle.
0: Behind any successful team are individuals who provide critical roles and support, not often in the limelight, but without whom the well-oiled machinery would grind to a halt. Our very special guest is precisely such a person, someone who has attended five olympic games with canada's national teams including last year's historic gold medal winning group in japan the players describe this individual as the glue the backbone and most commonly the team mom or my second mom an amazing servant to our sport from a family that has contributed so much to the game in our province and country she's also the first person to ever be requested for this podcast it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the cones and pennies podcast south surrey's own dunbar soccer association alum and more than just an equipment manager Maeve glass
5: hi peter thanks very much for having me
0: well thank you And I want to talk a little bit about your life before we really take a deep dive into what's happening right now with Canada's teams. But uh, during my growing up years, your mom, Pam, was a very pivotal figure in soccer, whether it was helping Carl Valentine naturalize prior to the 86 qualifying, her involvement with the 86ers, which was a model club. Was your path almost inevitable here, Maeve? I
5: think it probably was. My mom and dad are both immigrants from Ireland and Dad started one of the first soccer leagues up in Prince George when they first emigrated. But, you know, just having role models like mom and dad who are so entrenched and involved in the football community and in the communities in general, one of mom's things was just giving back. You know, it took the four of us down that road, definitely the four kids. Just a point of note, Peter, I know you're very familiar with the Westside Football Club, the documents to incorporate that club is the Westside football society were signed in my mom and dad's living room in 1978.
0: Amazing. Which was such a great time period. Maeve, how did you enjoy growing up in Vancouver in the seventies and eighties?
5: Oh, loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I know you played with Dunbar soccer. I actually was on the first girls team with Dunbar soccer. When I started playing in 1974, there were four girls teams in Vancouver and we just continually played each other so it was great And I'll give a shout out to my alma mater Lord Bing I was just away this past weekend their lifelong friendships that were formed through soccer and through Lord Bing so it was really really a fabulous childhood and it was a wonderful time to grow up in Vancouver that's for sure
0: it's so funny because I'm a Bing grad too, 87 so and I played for yeah what else do we have in common for crying out loud by the way what was the name of that Dunbar girls team you played on and and do you remember the names of the other teams that You played.
5: I think we were just called Dunbar Girls. And we admittedly were quite a bit of a novelty back then. And there was a team from the east side of Vancouver and two teams from Musqueam who were very, very good. Yeah, there was (laughs) there was four of us. And it was back in the days where you'd finish your game. And you'd stay in your kit all day because you just felt so cool. And I, you know, was wearing my Adidas Argentina cleats into McDonald's four or five hours after the match had finished.
0: That had to be the McDonald's at Broadway and Balaclava, correct? That one wasn't even built yet. It was, <laughs> one,
5: it was the one in Caristel, just by the Caristel Arena.
0: Right. Oh my goodness. So soccer clearly, <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was clearly a big part of your life. How, how fast were you getting into soccer, Mave? Like how young were you? when you started
5: i was 14 there's four kids and my dad, for a Irish, traditional Irishman, he was really good. He used to take myself, my sister Kelly, and my brother Eamon just out to knock the ball around on a Saturday afternoon. When I was quite young, I would have been probably sort of nine or ten. It wasn't really the norm for girls to be out knocking the ball around with their brother and their dad. So really, really entrenched
0: at a fairly early age. Now, were you Lord Kitchener by any chance?
5: No, I went to Our Lady of Perpetual Help. and My mom was my PE teacher for seven
0: years. Wow. So I'm sure you didn't tell your elementary school teacher, well, I want to be Canada's equipment and logistics manager one day. So at (laughs) what point does that pathway open up for you?
5: There weren't that many opportunities for girls in football when I was growing up. And, you know, I was a decent player, but I don't know that I would have been good enough if there was something at the time. But I was absolutely obsessed with the Olympic Games, and I would read every book there was at quite a young age. Um, You know, any Olympic statistics, I could rattle them off for you. It became kind of an obsession to become an olympian and i was a swimmer as well as a soccer player it was never good enough <laughs> swimming to make it at the higher levels but just absolutely obsessed with the olympics and i was also a runner and i got selected when i was in grade 11 bc's gift to the montreal olympic games was the torch relay well it used to be bc track and field it's now bc athletics submitted my name it was kind of a draw my name got drawn to be one of the torch bearers so i carried the torch from ottawa to hull and then we were the guests of the canadian olympic committee for the duration of the games and that was as close as i ever thought i was going to get to being an olympian but things are strange and the way the world evolves is very interesting so I always wanted to do something in sport and that started at a very young age.
0: Well, it would be a harbinger for things to come. We'll get to that a little bit later, but you've had this VIP backstage pass to see firsthand the evolution of the women's game. And I can only imagine the difference between the Olympics and world cups of say 20 plus years ago with last year how dramatic has that growth been through your lens
5: it's been pretty remarkable and it's been such a privilege to be involved in it like i was back in 2011 and i've been with the team since 2006 So, you know, I've watched a lot of the players grow up, staff come and go. Bev Priestman was my fifth head coach. But a lot of the groundwork, I have to say, and a lot of the credit to where we finished on the podium this summer has got to go to John Herdman. And he really instilled in the players and in the staff wanting to do better for your country that started you know when he came in in 2011 we were in bits it was a really low point for the women's program and Evan had worked really hard to build it up and we had an Italian coach came in and just things didn't work out and John came in and basically picked all of us up off the floor I think I was one of the only staff members left to pick all of us up off the floor and made us want to do better. And, you know, we ended up with the bronze medal in 2012, which was the first time a team sport in Canada had won a medal since 1936, I think it was, and then repeated that in Rio in 2016. So I would be remiss if I didn't give John so much of the credit for laying the groundwork of where we ended up this summer. But it was really, really remarkable. You know, and I think for me, the worst game was the Brazil match. You know, when you're in a quarterfinal, you know you lose, you're out. But if you win, you've got at least two more matches to go on. And I knew at that time that I was going to be leaving the women's program. Only Bev was the other one that knew. So I just thought, I don't want to end my career with the women's program in a shootout against Brazil in the boiling heat of Tokyo. So it was, that for me was probably the most nerve-wracking game. And then the US game and then the, obviously the Sweden game, just really, really icing on the cake. It was, it was so remarkable. And just the staff that were there and the players that were there, they're such a cohesive group, no hesitation in holding each other up and holding each other accountable as well. So it was pretty cool.
0: Now I want to dive deep into that in just a moment, but I'm curious about as the game has evolved on the women's side so drastically, how has your role changed over that time and has it become more complex?
5: It has actually, my title, and this when John came in, he changed my title from equipment manager to tour and equipment manager. So I would do a lot of the -the on-the-ground work along with the program manager, who at that time was Daniel Michelucci. He and I would work very collaboratively on things away from the equipment side of things, you know, like park bookings, hotel site visits, needs of the staff and players when they arrive, transportation, that kind of thing. So it was a really wonderful to be able to get my hands dirty with all this kind of stuff. Just being on the cutting edge, if you will, of of what would be optimum to performance for both the players and staff and making sure that we had those things in place for when the players and staff would come into camp. So it, it has evolved over the almost 16 years that I was with the team quite drastically and in a good way. It's the stuff that I just love being involved in as well. So it definitely
0: has. I believe a big factor from both of our national teams is how many players are now in elite environments in Europe. And on this very show, Bev Priestman said as much, you know, you really notice it when those players aren't with the group. So for players like Jesse and Janine and Jordan, Ashley, the names go on. What have you noticed in them since their European club adventures began?
5: Absolutely. I'm glad you touched on that. For me, I mean, I grew up in an Irish family, my husband's English, so we're very accustomed to the ways of the footballing world but for these players to go over to Europe and really be immersed in the culture gives them a whole new understanding of the game that, that you know some of them have played for 10 12 years being immersed in that culture and they come back into camp and they really understand everything from the bottom to the top so i would agree with bev it's just benefited both the players individually and the team collectively to have these players playing in these high performance famous clubs in Europe
0: The word culture is used a lot, Maeve, oftentimes incorrectly with regards to organizational habits, but one of Canada's biggest secret weapons, at least from the outside it appears, is togetherness. Even from my lens, and I'm thousands of miles away from Tokyo, but it was so obvious on the women's side. Why, Maeve? What's behind the chemistry of the women's program?
5: Well, I have to give credit to one of my colleagues, Robin Gale, who is our culture manager, and john recognized the need a number of years ago for a mental performance trainer and a culture manager before rio another one of my colleagues alex Hodgins, who now is with the canucks did an extensive body of work in that space and culturally and mentally the two of them would work in tandem would identify any red flags address them immediately so nothing festered. you know you've got a group of very diverse people who not everybody's going to agree all the time so It was having this common goal, Robbie and Alex would steer the players back on track if they saw anything going sideways. So you're right, Peter, culture is a huge part of our success being the women's national team and courage to speak up and to hold people accountable. And within the women's team, there's a leadership group and it's a really cool mix of younger players, veterans, and we call them the in-betweeners. Players can come to them with issues or ideas or thoughts or whatever. And I think what it boils down to is respect for one another and respect for one another's ideas as well. So culturally, it was like a well-oiled machine for sure. And I am really glad you touched on that because it's a huge piece of the success that we had.
0: You alluded to your decision to move on from the women's team. And then the next thing we all knew, there you are with the men for the US <laughs> and El Salvador games. How did that come together?
5: You know, it comes a point in your life too, where you just have to know when it's time to move on and I'd been with the team for nearly as I say nearly 16 years and just a remarkable ride and I absolutely loved my job and I didn't ever want to not go out on a high. I didn't want to be the one that is the last to leave the party being told to go home. So it was time for me to move on. And John, who I worked with for several years before he went over to the men's side, asked me if I would come in, because I don't know if you saw their travel schedule. It's just brutal. Asked me if I would come in and assist with the transitions on the ground in Hamilton, and I jumped at the chance. You know, John's a, I've never met anybody like him and the way his brain works, he just makes you want to do your best and want to be your best. So the opportunity to, you know, even be it for a short time to come in and help out with their transitions when they got to Hamilton. And then as it turned out, I ended up going into El Salvador was just something I couldn't pass up, you know, just working in that high performance environment with players who, are just pretty remarkable, actually, and I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. It was just wonderful.
0: So there you were on the inside. Do you see similarities between the groups, given that John has his fingerprints kind of on
2: both?
5: I do, in a really good way. You know, and every coach comes in and wants to put their own stamp on things, and certainly when John left, Kenneth came in, Kenneth Heinermuller came in, and A wonderful guy and you know different coaching style but just a a really great fellow and he put his stamp on things and then Bev came in and it was great to have Bev back because I worked with her a lot when she was here with the youth programs and for her to come in and to bring not only the experience that she had with John but the experience that she had with Phil Neville working with the FA was really cool to see it from her lens as well but absolutely there's similarities the way the programs are structured why reinvent the wheel John has had such great success on both sides now. Why wouldn't you try and emulate that?
0: I'm not sure if us fans and outsiders or observers are allowing ourselves to dream about where the ceiling is for this men's team as Qatar looms closer. But from what you saw and heard, how confident is that group?
5: Very. And they call themselves the Brotherhood, which is, I can't think of a better word to describe the culture there. Like those players and the staff would run through a brick wall for each other and i think a great deal of their success is they'll play out of their socks for one another and for john and the staff but they are such a tight group you know and it, it was such a privilege to be in you know albeit for 6 days and just to see how much they love each other how much they go to bat for each other i agree i don't know what the limit is for these guys and i'll really age myself here i was at the world cup in 1986 and we were just happy to be there, but now it's, you know, we need this one point, but the men's national team is going in as real contenders. And getting back to the culture piece, I would say that has a huge impact on how well they're doing.
0: Let's talk Tokyo, Mave. I vividly recall seeing a photo that you posted on social at YVR the morning of departure And you and your bags of gear and seeing that photo, given the COVID situation the world was in at the time, the unknowns, the variables, the restrictions. And with your role being about logistics, I actually found myself anxious thinking (laughs) about it. How are you feeling on departure day?
5: Well, it's funny over the years, you make connections and you network and that you just talk to the right people. And I've been lucky enough to make some really good connections at YVR. (laughs) They're so willing to help. If you just ask the national team, women's national team travels with over four and a half metric tons of equipment. And because of the COVID situation, cargo space is at a premium. So we ended up having to carry a lot of our cargo, but kudos to The people at YVR, you know, Francis at Air Canada and YVR, they had trolleys out to meet us. They had porters assisting us getting bags in. It was not nearly as bad as it seemed. (laughs) You know, it's a lot of advance work goes in, but the day was really smooth. It can be quite anxiety filled when you're moving basically a little city from one place to another. Over the years, you just make some really good connections, and they are wonderful people at YVR.
0: You alluded earlier to the Brazil match, and uh, I'm wondering at what point in the competition did the thought cross your mind that the bloody colour of this medal is going to change here?
5: I wasn't thinking beyond the Brazil match. I don't get very anxious, and I was so filled with anxiety during that (laughs) shootout. And my daughter sent me a photo when we ended up winning, and I've got my hands at my temples, and I look like I'm about to be sick. That's exactly what I felt like. It was such a relief when that quarterfinal match finished. I thought, you know what? Bev is right. I think we're going to absolutely hammer this. Going into the US game, we're definitely perceived as the underdogs. But I felt this weird calmness going in. Maybe it was because I knew we'd have another game after that. But I really wasn't worried about winning that game. It was very strange. Jess scored that penalty and came over. And that's, I think, when I really thought, yeah, this gold medal is going to be ours.
0: When Bev came on this show just before Christmas, she said, I wanted this for Christine and Maeve. (laughs) Yeah, she did. Yes. Grosso steps up. Netting ripples. What's the first thought that went through your mind?
5: This is going to sound terrible, but I was just glad I didn't pee my pants. <laughs> I, was just, I was just, oh my God, we have actually done this. And I just thought of all the people that had laid the foundation for this program, like Christine like Amy Walsh, like Karina LeBlanc, like Rian Wilkinson, you know, and I'm sure I'm forgetting some of them, but they flashed through my mind. We would not be here if it wasn't for you guys. And it's funny because I've known Julia and Jordy. One of the first camps that we did with that U15 group, Julia and Jordy came in and they were both 12, so I've known these kids since they were kids and her family's so wonderful. You know, Carlos and the family, they're just a wonderful family. And, you know, it's cliche, but it couldn't have happened to a better kid. And I was riding up the elevator with her and Jordy in the village afterwards when we came back from the stadium and I just said to them, you know what, you guys savor this. This is going to change your lives for the better in ways that you could never imagine and Julia's off at Juve now I saw a little clip of her on the weekend and I felt this really weird motherly pride it was pretty remarkable and you got to give a shout out to Steph Bay for that it was remarkable absolutely remarkable in that shootout
0: the smiling assassin the penalty whisperer I call her
5: oh yeah that's a good description that's a really good description
0: so let's just yeah. confirm you are not going to be at the Arthur Clark Cup in England
5: I will not <laughs> it's time for me to cut the apron strings
0: so well based on how challenging it was just to lock you down for this show you still seem very busy maeve what's next for maeve glass
5: i'm hoping that i get another call in with the men's team because i really really enjoyed it if they can use my expertise i would be thrilled i'm just taking some time to consider what the next steps are really i'm enjoying watching the olympics and it's funny that i was way with the girls for the weekend I just said, you know, I haven't watched a Winter Olympic Games in 16 years because we've always been in camp. There's sports there that I have never heard of, like Big Air and Monobob, and it's quite fascinating to be able to sit down and watch it. It will definitely be something sport related, but I'm just going to take some time now and spend some time with my dogs and my husband and I are hoping to do some traveling, but um, nothing concrete, Peter.
0: The women all say you're like their second mom. Did you get the same kind of vibe from the men?
5: no they're a different kettle of fish too cool for school <laughs> yeah but they're such nice guys they're just you know here's this geezer coming in and I was riding up in the elevator with Atiba and Sam Adekube and here's guys that are world famous players and they started asking me questions hey I thought you retired and I didn't think they knew who I was I thought you retired oh, you know yeah and Oh, so I saw some clips of you, and I said, yeah, was that the one drinking the Guinness? And he "Oh, yeah, yeah, that was the one. <laughs> um, they're different, but in a good way, too. They're all over the world, whereas WNT players, you know, they're in their clubs, they're in season, they're out of season. It's a different kettle of fish, but not in a bad way by any stretch. And the players, they would come to me with stuff, you know, I was like their second mom, and it was... Such an honor to be in that role and to be able to help them out whenever I could, because there was periods of time when we were on the road, well, the Olympic one is a long one, it's usually about six weeks, and there's some young kids in there and and staff and they get homesick, much as you think they might be worldly, they're people too. And like I say, it was a real privilege to be in that role there was some years where I saw the women's national team players more than I saw my own kids. So it was, it's been a hell of a ride. Just unbelievable.
0: This has been amazing just to chat with you, but we have to finish up with the lightning round here, Maeve, which is basically a series of questions. It's a gimmick. Let's be honest. So I'm going to, I'm going to blitz you with some questions. Here we go. (laughs) How many air miles do you have right now?
5: 210,000.
0: Which is it? Aisle, middle, or window seat? Aisle. Figured. You know, you got to get access to the overhead. Uh, What's your all-time favorite country that you visited?
5: I'm really biased here. (laughs) I've got to say Ireland. Footballing-wise, I don't know if I can do a lightning on that one. I love being in England because of the football culture there.
0: What was your worst-ever equipment-related mishap?
5: In Brazil, in 2013, all of our gear got stuck in customs for eight days, and the tournament organizers had to actually go and buy us balls and kit. (laughs) It was a nightmare.
0: Which national team has the better music selection, men or women?
5: Gotta say the women.
0: (laughs) Which female player is the best singer? Desiree Scott. And what does Desiree call you? (laughs) Maplelicious. Correct. From your experience, (laughs) which national team player spends the most time in front of a mirror?
5: Well, it used to be Kaylin Kyle. (laughs) And she wouldn't mind me saying that. I saw her a couple weeks ago. Hey,
0: listen, it's working.
5: (laughs) Oh, she's doing phenomenal things. Yeah. Right now, I honestly don't know.
0: If you could make a fortune off one word or expression John Herdman uses over and over again, what word or expression would that be?
5: Rock your fundies. Eat, sleep, move. He is such a proponent of looking after your own self-health and mental health while you're in camp.
0: Tell us something about Bev Priestman that would surprise us.
5: She is probably one of the pickiest eaters I've ever come across.
0: Hmm. <laughs> I think meticulous is the word. Meticulous
5: uh, <laughs> is a good way of describing. It. She's also a meticulous dresser. I've had the same hairdresser for years, and she's very fashion conscious. She said, tell Bev she really rocked her sideline outfits, and Bev was thrilled when I told her that.
0: Yeah, no, she brought her sideline game, no question. Have you ever been out for a meal in White Rock and had your tab anonymously paid? Yes, yes. <laughs> oh man, if I was you, I'd be I'd be at Uli's all the time just loading up and then waiting.
5: I milked it after the Olympics. <laughs> I milked those hockey hours and oh my god, it was it was quite something. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Maeve, what a delight. I can't believe we haven't spoken more given, you know, all our funny little connections.
5: This was a thrill, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. It was just awesome.
0: And, and listen, on behalf of the entire provincial soccer community, you know, you've made BC very proud for everything you've done in the game, but, but also for our country. And thank you for carrying the glass torch, Maeve, and congratulations on your career.
5: Thank you so much, Peter.
0: Wow. I mean, the word legend does get thrown around a little too often, but given what the players say about Maeve, I think it's quite justified in this particular case. What stories, what a career. And there's Maeve apparently at the end of her career, while Martin Nash is now just starting his journey as a head coach. And it's going to be so much fun to watch what happens over the coming years with both individuals. Quality, proud British Columbians. And by the way, Why can't that be you one day? I really appreciate you listening and would love it if you could share this program with somebody that you think might like it. And of course, keep the suggestions coming on guests because Maeve was a real winner. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next time.
1: Subscribe to the BC Soccer Cones and Pennies podcast on your Apple or Android device or find us on Spotify or SoundCloud.